0: chapter of John. And I want to tell you beforehand that I don't think in all my studies that, you know, I study from the Bible first and from about, I guess, ten different commentaries on the side. And I don't think I've come to a portion of scripture where everybody seemed to take a different view. A different line of thinking I've never seen so many interpretations to one portion of scripture as I found reading yesterday but what finally happens in the end is you don't have to be confused don't be scared of commentaries just pray very carefully before you start to study and as you're studying remember last week it said Jesus said I send you the Holy Spirit to be your teacher be your teacher so claim that promise and pray before you start that he'll teach you truth and lead you into truth because that's exactly what his, his purpose and his, his mission is, is to lead us into truth. And so when I find something where everybody seems to contradict each other, all I do is go again to the Lord and say, okay, I need some special guidance, you know. I need you to help me understand what you want, you know, for me to get from this and what you want me to share. So in the end, I finally came up with one person. I was telling Leslie Anderson that one of her husband's books was what just shed more light on it than any other thing. All of them put together, all the Campbell Morgans, the Ironsides, the Hobbes, Arthur Pink. Is anybody familiar with a man named Arthur Pink? Well, that I just couldn't believe what I found in his particular commentary. And I want to thank you again for allowing this to me. And giving me that you know that opportunity to get that kind of insight from him so that's what I'm gonna share I'm going to give you some different opinions maybe just a couple different lines of thinking and you can I guess this is one if you have all these respected people being convinced in their hearts that this is what it is I guess this is one like the elephant where the the men come to the elephant and each has a leg or an arm uh, they don't have arms a leg or a trunk or or a tusk or something (laughs) And each one thinks he knows exactly what the elephant's all about, but they're all blind. You know, they're just taking that portion they can see. And I think in cases like this, they're sincere in what they, they're thinking, but maybe it's just so much bigger than any of us dream that all these things are encompassed in it with, you know, with more than one spiritual truth taught or applying to more than one group or, or section of people. But I, I'll share that with you and then come down to what I, I believe Arthur Pink hit upon that seemed to make such good sense. Uh, the 15th chapter, where he starts, I am the true vine, another one of the I ams, the great I ams, the identification. Every time he says I am, he identifies himself with the Father, with Jehovah, because he, Jehovah had said to Moses, I am, tell them, I am, sent you. And so Jesus says several times in the Gospel of, of John, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. And the vine, and here, this particular one, we're going to have to research some. We're going to have to go to some different scriptures more than we usually do in order for us to put it all together. But in the Old Testament, uh, be looking up Psalm 80. Um, well, I don't have a verse for that. So, yeah, I do. Psalm 80, 8, and 9. And Jeremiah 2:21. I'll call on somebody to read these. Hosea 10:1. And these are just three that are isolated passages. There are many, many more where the Old Testament referred to Israel, the nation Israel, as the vine and Jehovah as the keeper of the vineyard, the keeper of the vine. And so it was not unusual to speak to Jews of this time and use the. Uh, you need the references again: Psalm 88 and 9, and Jeremiah 2:21, and Hosea 10:1. <laughs> And at this point, the vine had become the symbol of Israel. You know, if, if they uh, advertised in any way on coin period, they even put the vine on the coin or uh, on the temple. When they built the temple, it had a great golden vine that was covering the temple. And it was just a thrill for anybody to get enough money together so that they could go and, and contribute enough gold to make another cluster of grapes on the vine or one grape, if they could only afford to put one grape on a cluster this was something that was so important to them. So they recognized the... Um the picture that he was giving here of the vine as being something that was going to pertain to Israel. They were going to have to get a message about Israel. But Jesus was going to say, as he said all along, I'm the fulfillment of all this. I've come to explain all this. And no longer is the nation Israel going to be what's going to be looked at as the true vine. The true vine is Jesus Christ. And no longer because of your heritage, the fact that you were born a Jew and you were born in Jerusalem, no longer will these things have any importance at all. If if you ignore me or leave me out of it, you don't have any right in uh, as a part of the vine so all of these things are things that these Apostles are going to need to hear and the Jewish community is going to need to hear and we're going to need to hear today you see it follows through at this point it's so important for us to realize who he's talking to and I think that was the key that was the key to unraveling the different views The key was who he was talking to and you remember they've left the upper room at this point and they're going over Maybe by way of uh, through the streets maybe by way of the temple and Jesus usually used his allegories as you know They were caused or brought to his mind by something he saw if he was going to give a dissertation or a teaching on the great shepherd He was probably by hillside seeing a shepherd keeping his flock And so they were looking at something usually when he gave these picture studies And so they could have either been going by the temple and seen this golden vine across the temple gate. They might have seen that because the temple gate would have been open so they could have looked through because they left it open so they could prepare for Passover, and Passover was the next day. And so that a person could be free to come into the outer court and prepare the cleansing rituals taking place the night before. All right, that could have been it. Or it could have been that they had gone on past there, maybe just this side of the Mount of Olives, And there were vines growing everywhere. This was probably one of the the things you saw more than anything else. In Israel, and especially Jerusalem, were vines, grape vines. And they were so tenderly kept. I mean, they were keepers of the vine. Very seldom were they left to just grow wild. And they were kept so precisely in the pruning. And all took place. So this might have been the picture. They might have seen an actual vine, an actual vineyard. And he used that to teach this spiritual lesson. It could have been uh, some at least one person said that maybe they had not at this point left the upper room, and he had given the teaching on um, the the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the drinking of the cup. And it could have been that he was looking at that. Very, I think everybody, only about one person thought that they had not left, because you remember the last uh, part of the 14th chapter said, Arise and let us go hence. Let us go on out, let us go forward to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane experience and to the cross the next day. So it's likely, it's much more likely that they were either passing the temple or they were beyond that and actually looking at a vineyard. All right, who has Psalm 88 and 9? Just out with it. Okay, even as far back as, as the Exodus experience, you brought a vine. You brought a vine out of Egypt. And he begins to refer to them even then as a vine, as the vine, a vine. Jesus is going to say, I am the vine. True is what he's saying. I am the true vine. I am the vine, the true vine. If you're looking for the fulfillment of the teaching on the vine, you must look to Jesus. Who has Jeremiah 2.21? Such good intentions, with the love of God and the care of God, to draw the Gentile nation to himself. That was his intention for the nation, nation in Israel, and it wasn't very long till he comes over and he begins to picture this vine brought out on the Exodus experience. This vine is being a degenerate vine. It was not fulfilling the purpose that he had for it. It was decaying. The vine itself was just rotting away. And so we need to keep this in mind. Here is Hosea 10 1. No, what happened to the vine by this time is that it had become a vine unto itself. It was not going God's way at all. The nation was not going God's way. And they were just taking upon themselves all just self righteous people. And so the vine here again is pictured as one that was just wasting away to nothing. It was not fulfilling its purpose. And something new had to happen. Something very different had to take place. And Jesus was saying to them Look, look to me. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Forget about the nation at this point. Don't look because you are a, a certain particular person born of a certain race in a certain, in a certain land. Don't think that you have any right to the Father's vineyard or that makes you automatically a branch on the vine. It doesn't. The new vine, the true vine, is Jesus. The fulfillment of all the prophecy in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of every picture that was given. Every allegory that was given is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And he said, if you want to be a branch on this vine, you must come by way of me. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to be a branch on this tree, Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, if you want to be a branch on this tree, you must come that, by way of, of myself, by way of the true vine. All right, now you've got the picture. By now you've got the picture of what they might have thought of when he began to talk about the true vine. And these are those last urgent messages that he gives them. He has only maybe 24 hours left. And everything that he says, if you know anybody, if you knew you had 24 hours to live, I doubt if even I would be silly. I, I imagine I'd get down to, to straight business, and I imagine that every word that came from my mouth would be something I wanted somebody to remember—some instruction that I had to give, or something that I thought was so pertinent that they would need to remember. And Jesus, much more so. That's just an earthly picture, an earth, a, a, a human person. But Jesus could not waste one minute as far as teaching was concerned. Everything they had to learn at this point was something that was going to keep them when He died, keep them for the three days until He was resurrected, keep them in faith believing that all that he said was true and was going to come to pass and then when he came back and showed himself in the resurrected body and told them what was going to happen in the next few days they were going to have to remember this still and know that the true vine was Jesus and the church the body would be built branches would become a part of the vine by way of uh, born-again experience <clears throat> So, okay the New Testament do you remember in Isaiah 53 2 do you remember where it said there was a young root a young sprout that would spring up out of Judah turn to Isaiah 53 three two. it begins to almost show the planting of this new vine in that chapter that just shows dramatically the person of Jesus not only in his birth and his early life but in his um, crucifixion and his resurrection in, in the crucified Christ especially who is that somebody got into Isaiah 53 three two. Irene Plant this little root he would he would plant very carefully and he did plant him as a little baby And you watched the father take care of that little plant didn't you did you remember how he when even when plotting had Taken place to do away with all the boy babies knowing that there was a little boy born a little baby They said was the Son of God they said was the Messiah and they even Went so far as to plan to kill the boy babies. And God, the keeper of the vineyard, the keeper of this little sprout, God the Father, took care of this little baby and even had Joseph take him off to Egypt and take care of him very carefully there. And he was watched over all the early years of his life by the Father, by the keeper of the vineyard. That little sprout grew up to be the true vine, the true vine. And we would all place our faith and trust in him if we wanted to be a branch on the vine. Okay, now, when he says, I am the the true vine and my father is the husbandman, we can take, father is going to be the keeper because one of the problems we're going to run into this is that it's going to be the one, like many of us, if we have some doctrine we believe very strongly as a denomination or whatever, we have a doctrine we want to, inf- we will take anything. It doesn't matter who it was spoken to or where it was spoken. We'll take that and if any way we can make that you know, put a stamp of approval upon our doctrine, we'll take that and make it do that. Exactly that. Well this is what happens here because there are many people who believe that that if you're disobedient, if you don't do so many things in your Christian life, if you don't keep a certain plan for your life and everything that you're cut off. That you're no longer a branch on the vine. That you can in in a state of apostasy you can be thrown aside and your salvation is not secure. All right, we come, they'll take this and take a portion of this and make it sound like you can literally be cut off that vine and cast burned. I want you to keep the arguments in mind before we get into it. There are those, we come to a place where we say, okay, the Bible teaches so much on the, the security of the believer. If you did that to this portion of Scripture, what would you do with all those portions that tell about the security of the believer? Let's look at those. If we can get all these scriptures as our background, it'll make it so much easier. You're familiar with John 3.16 where he says, Whoever believes in him, in the Son, will have eternal life. Eternal life. Now all of these passages have to do with eternal life. And eternal means forever. So Jesus said, if you place your faith and trust in him, even in John 16, which everybody loves, if you place your faith and trust in him and you believe in him and you commit yourself to him, you will have eternal life. Not just life so long as you do this and so long as you do that. Now, you might have a miserable life, Once you've gotten, you've become a branch on the vine. You may be miserable if you decide to be disobedient, and you will. You'll have no fellowship. You'll have no communion. You won't dwell in him. You'll have no fulfillment as far as your purpose for being created and recreated is concerned. There won't be any of that, but you'll still be in him. You'll still have eternal life. All right, John 4.14. And let me throw these out at you, and somebody be looking up real quick, and we'll do it in a hurry. John 4.14, John 10.28... John 18:9 we got a lot in John about eternal security. Romans five, 9 and 10. and Romans 8: 35 through 39. And who's got 4:14? that in our studies in John already he says I will become when you receive me and you drink of the living water and you Receive the living water into your life. I become a perpetual stream bubbling out of for eternity It never dies it you can quench it you cannot take advantage of it But you cannot take away this stream that's within you if you allow it to it'll bubble up and overflow Every day of your life, but the stream will never be taken away But the living water will never be taken for away from you That's for eternity. Okay. Who has John 10 28? Gets even stronger. Then not only shall they have eternal life—that's forever. The word eternal means forever, and there were no conditions attached to these. No conditions saying if you if you attend every single Sunday, if you are obedient all the way along the way. Now you cut yourself off from from the fulfillment of the Christian life and the joy and the thrill of the life in Christ and the abundance of the life. You cut yourself off from that, to be sure. But you do not cut yourself off from salvation. One day out there in future, being with him, he says, nobody's going to pluck any one of these out of my hands. Now, I trust him. I don't know about you, but if, if he said nobody's going to pluck me out of his hand, I don't believe anybody can. They can usurp my testimony if I let them, and usurp my, my influence if I let them, but they cannot take me out of the hand. They're going to have to take me away from him, and he's stronger than anybody else in any other power, so I believe he can keep me secure securely. All right, 18:9, John eighteen nine. He said he never had lost any, and if he says they're not going to be plucked out of his hand, and he says nobody, he hadn't lost one yet by that time, I feel like he knows what he's talking about, and nobody, he ain't going to lose one, until all together with him, and nobody's going to be lost after they become a branch on the true vine, on the true vine, if you're depending anything on anything else but Jesus, the true vine, You're not going to last long anyway. But if you're depending on Jesus and put your faith and trust in him, commit your life to him, receive him, have the power to become a son, a child of God, if that happens to you, it's forever. All right, Romans 5, 9, and 10. He spells it out just as plain there as he possibly can. The blood of Christ, the atoning blood of Christ, has covered our sins. Where we were once at enmity with God, once we were his enemies, once we were opposed to him. Then when we came to the Son, the Son made the provision for us to become a child of God. It's all in Jesus. Even salvation is all in Jesus. But once we claim that and we trust that and commit it to him, that's one of the gifts. You know, he said, peace I give to you in the last chapter. One part of that peace is not only peace of mind that we're talking about is a daily experience, but he gives to us peace with God through himself and through his blood. Peace with ourselves. We can have that in Jesus. Peace with others we can have in Jesus. We can have as much of that gift or as little of that gift as we choose, but the peace that comes with God the Father as far as our sins are concerned is taken care of in the Son's uh, death on the cross and our claiming that for our own. Uh, Romans eight thirty five through 39 one to last because that's such a strong one that one is Paul is saying that there is absolutely nothing no power No, thing nothing that can separate us from Christ when we're in Christ Jesus There's not a power a thing anything possible that can separate us from that love because he takes up his dwelling within us Within us and that's forever remember he said I send you the Holy Spirit in the last chapter Send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you to dwell in you to be in you and he'll be there forever be there forever. And you're going to have to cut out out, out a whole big portion of the scripture if you're not going to believe in the eternal security of the believer. I just, I don't even see how you could do that. I don't see how you could take and chop it up and do away with these firm statements that have been made. I mean, they're so firm, you've got to believe that. You can't believe anything else. Now, that doesn't give license. And I think the person who says, okay, I'm saved forever and I live like I want to, that person's just never been saved. Let's face it. You don't do that. Once this power is within you, once the Spirit of God is within you, He spends every waking minute convicting you, leading you, conforming you to the image of Christ. And there's a constant working going on. What He's begun in us, He's not going to let go until the very end. He's not going to get let go for a minute. And so if you have such peace in living like you want To live, you've never been saved. It's as simple as that, and there is no security for that person. But if you have truly been born again, and that power is within you, you know how he's working with you, because he's convicting and convicting and convicting daily of sin. All right, now if we've established that, we're we're one step closer to understanding what he's going to say when he begins to talk about the vine. Okay, The father is the husbandman. He's the one who takes care of the pruning and the taking care of the vine of the son. He took care of the son. He takes care of the branches. He takes care of us too. Every branch in me, encircled in me, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. But we have to believe that the in me means every time the scripture says anything about being in Christ in Christ It means to be born again. I don't think anybody would take issue with that if it ever says you're in me That means you are born again So he's talking to born-again believers here Which takes the sting off a lot of these arguments if you can remember that he's not only referring He's talking specifically to to 11 apostles and do you remember back in, in about chapter 13 where it says Judas was still there and he said, uh, all of you have been cleaned except one. All of you are clean except one. All of you have been regenerated except Judas. Now Judas is gone by now. There are only 11 left. And Jesus had already said that all 11 of these had a relationship with him that was lasting, that was secure. So when he's talking to these 11, he's not talking to a mixed audience here, a mixed group of people. He's not talking to believers and unbelievers, profess with their mouth something that they don't possess in their heart. And that's where the other argument comes from, that what he's talking about here when he says they'll be cut away, he's not talking about what's going to happen one day when you stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you, you know. And they say, I prophesied in your name, I preached in your name, I taught in your name, I did things that you told me. You know, and he says, I never. you were never one of mine. And that's the professing Christian, but not the possessing Christian. But the 11 he was talking to here, he had already said himself were clean, where it had been cleansed. Are you with me this far? Right, this is kind of like we take a parable like uh, the parable of the, uh, the son, the prodigal son. And let's take that one to give you another example of how this can happen. You've got to remember who he was talking to and that puts all the difference in the world on how you interpret or how how that becomes uh, a living truth to you. But in the parable of the prodigal son, we usually use that prodigal without thinking of who he was talking about to mean that you can be a backslidden Christian and you can go away and you can live like you want to but one day you'll come back to the Father. Don't we use that a lot to make that that statement? He was not talking to Christians at all that day. He was talking to a group of scribes and Pharisees. He was talking to the enemy, the Scripture said. And when he pointed out that truth, and he didn't ever give believers' truth and believers' teachings to unbelievers, nor did he ever give unbelievers' truths to Christians. When he taught them something personally like this, he taught them where they were. And so when he was talking to the enemy that day, he gave three different parables, one of the lost coin, one of the lost sheep, and one of the prodigal son. All these were lost sinners, see, and that, that picture of that son that day who was away, the earthly son the earthly father, it is a spiritual picture, to be sure. But when he was talking to those people, he was saying, Listen, you can get away and you'll live in, in the muck and the mire of the world and everything. But even then, even that sinner, no matter where he is, comes to the father. And the father receives him with open arms and gives him kingship. You know, makes of him a king and a prince and a whatever you know, makes of him a part of the royal family. So that's an example of one we need to keep in mind who he was talking to like this one because here he was talking to 11 believers, 11 people who had had been regenerated, had been cleansed. All right, so he says, Every branch in me That's your key to understanding that he's talking to believers. That beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So we do have two groups of Christians, two groups of believers. Every born-again believer is not producing a lot of fruit. Do we agree with that? I mean, there are a lot of people who are born-again believers who are going to get in, the the Scripture says, by the skin of their teeth, as of an escape from fire, just barely get in. And they've been saved, they receive the gift of salvation, and even though the Lord continues to work with them and work with them and work with them, the same way we of our own free volitional will reach out and receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, that very same will is active in whether or not we accomplish the purpose He has us for. He has for us. That same will is operative in whether or not I dwell in Him daily, whether or not I abide in Him completely daily. That's up to me. It's up to me. And whether or not I desire that fellowship and that communion with Him to the point that I receive that gift from Him and that peace from Him, and I live and dwell and abide in Him daily. All right, so there are many Christians who are not fulfilling their purpose. Every single one of us who's been born again has been given a spiritual gift. Every single one of us has been given something so that we can accomplish something in the body that will make it work together and go beautifully, work, function together beautifully, proclaiming the message of Christ, revealing the Father still to the world. All right, so what happens? Many of us, we certainly can't say that in any given group of believers, everybody's functioning like they should. If that were true, there wouldn't be some people having to do I don't know how many things. Right? Right? Some people are having to take up the slack. And that was never his purpose. The one who dwells in Christ is to unveil that spiritual gift and then allows him to use this individual person to the fullest maximum capacity. That's when you dwell in him. You see, there are two states. You can be in him and not dwell in him, not rest in him, not abide in him. And so when he speaks of in me here, he's speaking of the salvation experience. But when he goes on to do the teaching on dwelling in me, he's talking about the surrendered experience, the fulfilling your potential in him. And he'll tell us how to do that in these scriptures too. But it's important that you keep those things in mind. All right, there are some people who are not producing fruit in the Christian community. And he says very clearly here that we have been saved, and it doesn't contradict the fact that we've been saved to be conformed to the image of Christ, because if we're conformed to the image of Christ, we will be producing fruit, right? There's no contradiction there. We've been saved to produce fruit to glorify the Father. All right, so I drew a couple of things over here that in no way show you what an artist I am. But I don't think you can see it over here but this is a, a tree. Now, what, this is kind of an example. I used a tree instead of a vine because I couldn't be out of a vine. <laughs> it would look like a snake, I think, and I don't want a snake on the blackboard. But what, here's where most of us are, can you see this little bitty thing? Here's where most of the people in the Christian community are. And what happens when you're born again, you have a taproot. This is the Holy Spirit. He said, I'll go away and I'll send to you a comforter, a divine helper, uh, one who will stand alongside you and give you strength. And so our taproot is really where we're tapped into the source of the Godhead. We're tapped in by power of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit, and we can just get as much as we possibly desire to have in a given day. All right, so the Japanese figured out a few years ago that if you took a pine tree, for instance, and let's make a pine tree the same as a vine because it's the same lesson, same object lesson, but if you took a pine tree that had the potential of growing into a mammoth tree, a mammoth tree, a big Shade tree affecting a lot of things around and producing cones of planting. If you took that tree and when it was a small baby tree you cut off its tap root. You either severed it or you squeezed it You know you you tied it together so that nothing could get through if that happened That tree would have to depend on its little surface roots and you have little surface roots it means you're still alive that tree's alive It's not a dead tree. It's alive, but it's just not functioning at all. It's got to depend on those little bitty teeny surface roots, and it never grows more than 12 to 16 inches high. It's a dwarf tree, and it never produces one single fruit. No fruit comes out that tree. When here's what was intended, that taproot is left free. And that tree can draw from all the nutrients of the soil and all the water and all the all of these things. It can just draw as much as it needs and it begins to grow. It doesn't have to depend on these surface roots. They're there. But it's depending on something much more powerful than surface roots. And it draws its strength from this taproot that sends it all up through and all out through the branches. And all of a sudden, there's this maturing tree that matures to full height and total potential that it has. It keeps growing. And pine cones, it just bears fruit aplenty. All right, this is the, st- this is the picture he has here. And the same thing with a vine. A vine was never uh, there for anything except to produce fruit, grapes. Because the wood, it was said all along that the wood was worth nothing. In the vine. In fact, it's it's said that when you brought wood for a sacrifice, sometimes you would have to bring an offering of wood along with the other offerings. And they said, don't bring any vine, any wood off the vine, because that that wood can't be used even for for making furniture. You can't use it for a sacrifice. It's good for nothing except to take over here and make a little bonfire, which is part of the picture here. You can take it and you make a little bitty, quick bonfire. It just burns up like paper burns up. And that's all it's good. It's good for nothing. Alright, so the fruit is what the vine's there for. It's going to take some careful pruning and keeping and tending and and watering and fertilizing and building up little things and keeping it off the ground and you know out of the you know the things that would destroy it or cause it. you've got to wash it off very carefully and get off of it. oh such careful, tender care has to be done uh, for the vine. The same thing for the Christian. This is the picture that he's given here. Alright, so he says the ones that that don't produce fruit, He taketh away. and there's the the trick translation that sounds like He takes that non-fruit bearing, dwarfed Christian, and He cuts him off. But that's not what He teaches here. Really, I found out from Arthur Pink that that same word that's used there can be interpreted "lifted up, lifted up." And it, as the same word was used when He said, "Jesus lifted up, lifted up His eyes to heaven." And so they gave several different places all through the Scripture where that verb, A-I-R-O, meant to be lifted up. And so that would make maybe better sense here in keeping with the whole pattern. if we said that weak Christian would be lifted up. He would be worked with and cared for and lifted up and, and not only by the Father, by the one who tends, but by fellow Christians. This is the teaching of the New Testament is that we help one another to grow. We make disciples. We make disciples. And so he could be lifted up from this place and cause somehow to be brought to a place where he would fulfill his his purpose for being here, which is to bear fruit, to bear fruit. Every one of us, he's not going to leave alone until we bear some fruit. And if it reaches the place where we continue to disobey and continue to disobey, maybe you come to that portion of Scripture where he says there is a sin unto death. You know, maybe it comes to the place where... Some of our premature deaths might even be the person who has been such an embarrassment to God for so long. And I don't want to go into that. But it, it is in the scripture and that there are even times when, when premature death might occur uh, for the child of God who is not fulfilled and not born any fruit. Which is another staggering thought. Okay, he says, now the ones who's bearing fruit, the ones who are bearing fruit, these branches that are bearing fruit, they need to be tended and carefully taken care of too. And he says he purges those. He cleans them. That's the better translation. He cleans them carefully each day. We go back to the teaching on the daily foot washing. Do you remember the need for daily cleansing? Because he follows up, and he must have, he must have been explaining this, because in chapter, I mean, verse 3, he says, Now you're clean. You're already clean. And he uses that word to mean regenerated, as he did in chapter 13. He says, Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken to. You're always, already clean, but the keeper of the vineyard, the keeper of the vine, has still got to to work with you daily, washing off the little debris, the disease, whatever happens to get on the sin that comes along during the course of a given day, he's going to be careful about tending to that. And every time these sins are confessed and taken care of and we're left in right relationship with him during the course of that day and have that fellowship and communion that comes from being confessed up to date, that person is the one who produces more fruit. Now, I want you to, to notice about three places. First of all, he said they bear fruit in uh, verse 2. And then in, in the end of verse three, uh, verse 2, it's more fruit. And then it, down in verse uh, 5, I believe, much fruit. You see the progression? Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. So we should be growing to such a degree every day of our Christian life that there's more fruit, more fruit, and more fruit, and more fruit. The more mature that vine gets, the bigger the grapes, the more succulent the grapes. And isn't it a shame that sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes in a person's life, when they're younger, they produce their best fruit. They're working very hard. And as they grow older, one thing and another happens and the begin to take over. When what a shame that is to the Christian community because by the time they mature to that age, offer. I mean, it's so mellowed. And so tasty and would make such an impact. I just hate to see anybody let age keep you from working and producing fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so let's, let's take a few things. The father as the husbandman, what does that suggest? It suggests, first of all, his protecting care. The fact that he's, his eye is never off a single branch for a minute. And his hand is so carefully kept on that tender little branch as it grows. The weakest, tenderest little sprout is watched over and cared for by the Father. All right, The second thing that, that it suggests is his watchfulness. Nothing escapes his eye. Nothing gets past his eye. He knows everything about us. He notices the welfare of each single one of these. And he notices the needs in each one of our lives, and when it needs a little discipline, or a little heavenly sandpaper, or a little chest, whatever it needs, a little cleansing, a little cleansing, a little purging, whatever it needs, he's carefully watching over us and accomplishing that in our lives. The third thing is his faithfulness. It suggests the faithfulness of the tender of the vine, the keeper of the vine, the husbandman. No branch is allowed to run to waste. He he doesn't spare the the spray or the knife. Whatever it needs, if, if we're going along fine and we're obedient and we're in the will of God, he's still working with us to conform us more to the image of Christ to bear more fruit, and that's that's tremendous. But if there's a little need for a little spiritual surgery along the way, a little cutting away in our lives, a little... Spat whatever we need during the course of that day. The husbandman, the father, is carefully watching over us and applying that kind of faithful, <laughs> diligent duty to make us what we are. And it's all in him. Remember that. Okay, if it's fruitless, he tends to it. If it bears fruit, he purges it so it'll bear more fruit. See, none of us are left alone. None of us are left alone for a minute if we're children of his. Okay, three things that cause that I wanted to bring up three things that cause the branches of a natural vine to become fruitless and we can take the natural and apply it to the spiritual. Three things that, that are known to do this if they become fruitless. One is that it, uh, through running to leaf, for instance you can take a tree or a vine or something, and you can just have a bunch of foliage and no fruit. And that's applied spiritually to our lives when it says we are working so in the flesh. Until there's no fruit of the spirit evidenced in our life. Now, we're working. Man, we're going like 90. But we're producing no spiritual fruit. And it's like being a lot of foliage. We had some tomato plants one time. They're the most beautiful p- tomato plants you ever saw in your life. But no Tomatoes. The leaves were, the foliage was so green, it was just a picture to behold. And they grew up past the ceiling, I think, but it didn't bear any fruit. So it was no, really no good. It was serving no purpose. I didn't slice a tomato. I don't think off those vines that year. Didn't eat of a thing that came off those vines, but they were beautiful. And so there are many of us in, in our Christian lives who are just working, you know we're working, but the spiritual fruit isn't there. It's all like leaves, nothing edible, nothing that's making an impact or, disease, or, or an impact upon the community, upon the church. All right. The second thing is through disease or blight, and there are a lot of people here who are are allowing this sin or that sin to stay in their life to the point that it's beginning to eat like a cancer. I mean, it's eating away at them, and they're becoming very miserable. And the husbandman is not leaving alone for a minute. He's convicting and convincing and pruning and cutting away and doing all of these things. But all the life is just miserable. It's so affected by disease. And when that gets straightened out, then the fruit, when the disease is taken care of in the life, in the individual life, then the fruit will be born. There'll be fruit there as a result of it. So sometimes our rough spots are the things that make us grow into maybe better fruit-bearing Christians through old age. Sometimes they don't bear fruit because they get old to the point that they just kind of wither and die. And I thought of one person when I, I came across that and this man in Mobile made an impact I mean he bore fruit. It wasn't just leaves He bore real fruit and there was somebody I was talking to just a week ago I think about a week ago in my Sunday school class who's from the same church I was in in Mobile and she, she said he made such an impact on my husband and me He had a department. He was a department director And he was just dynamic. You never saw anybody quite like him. He could give a devotional that would make you want to get up from there and go out and really do something. You know, you you learn from his devotionals. And that was very worthwhile. All right, what happened was, and and she had also talked to another friend, and she said, Where is he now? And this friend said, He's in Huntsville. And she said, You know, I'd almost moved to Huntsville to be able to sit and listen to him again. He meant that much to me. He bore fruit. And he did to Laddie and me when we were, before I I became a Christian, we were in that department. And I remember hearing him, and I thought, oh, he is something else. He's the picture of a person who walks with the Lord. Now, what happened when he got to Huntsville? He started out still very good, you know, still going great. And he got in, and the disease, something happened that didn't sit well with him. And he allowed that to nurture Be nurtured in his life, and he allowed it just to eat away at him and eat away at him. And he hasn't been in a church for seven years. Seven years. He's bearing no fruit, he's miserable. He's he's even said, oh, well, I've done my tour of duty as a young person. I've done my tour of duty when I was younger, and now I don't have to go anymore. Oh, but he's so miserable. You wouldn't believe how miserable. And there's not a single sign of fruit. And I wish I could go in, and it's no need to, but I wish I could go into the things that have happened in his life that have been tragic, really tragic. I mean, the Lord had not let go of him for a minute, which convinces him he is a child. It convinces, convinces me that he's a true child of God. He's so out of the will of God now, he's bearing no fruit, and he's allowed it to come about by way of disease and by way of an older age, you know, saying, well, it's not important. I'm there but you see this is if we learn anything last week this is till death I mean it goes on into eternity but our walk in this life we are to serve and to bear fruit till the very last breath leaves us we don't have any sabbaticals I don't even like to hear people talking about taking their sabbaticals there's nowhere in the scripture it says you take a year off not a single place it says you take a day off it says we are to bear fruit daily All right, now that's I had somebody last Sunday say we're in Matthew and we're in the Beatitudes and she says, You know, you never make this down easy. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't found anything easy about the whole thing except that he, he does go on a little further and he tells us the secret of it So he's provided for even how we do this how it's accomplished in our life So you're now clean through the word. That's the born-again experience now He says go beyond that you're clean in me you're in me now There's something beyond it abide in me dwell in me whatever your translation has rest in me There's something deeper that I want for you as far as your life is concerned. And that's a constant abiding. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. You want to know how you bear fruit? It's not just being saved. You can get out of fellowship all along the way. You want to bear fruit? It's born as you abide in him daily, as you dwell in him. And he dwells in freedom in you. And that dwelling, all the way, every time it mentions dwelling or abiding, it's talking about communion and fellowship, communion and fellowship with Him. If every day it's so important for us to get up and begin that day with a knowledge of our need for fellowship with Him that day, if we want to bear fruit, if we want to bear fruit that day, we need to start that day off and say, Lord, here I am. Let's talk about today. You don't have to say it in those words. But it's not anything wrong with it. Let's let's talk about it. I don't know what's out here, but you do. And I need you today. Go to him in the morning. That's like an antiseptic for the day. I think that's like applying something, you know, for what's out there that day. And all through the course of the day, we should be in such fellowship with him, abiding in him, that he can lead and direct in all things. And no matter what happens, we're so close to him, we don't have to stop and get things straight during the course of that day. We're in communion. We're abiding in Him. We're dwelling in Him. And we're bearing fruit that day. Any day we do this is the day we bear fruit. And at the end of that day, When you get through, oh, there's such a need to abide and dwell in him at the close of a day. When you say to him, boy, this has been a day. You know, this has really been a day. You know, I thank you for everything. I thank you for the good things. I thank you for the things that have been rough. I thank you for the pruning you've done. I thank you for the purging you've done. I thank you for whatever you've done as the vineyard keeper for me as one branch on the vine. I thank you for your care today. And really talk to him, like, stay with him through the course of a given day. It doesn't mean that you have to be in the Bible studying all day. It doesn't mean that you have to be in the four walls of a church all day. It doesn't mean you have to carry a Bible around with you all day. It doesn't mean those things. It means walking in such abiding fellowship with him that he produces, is able to produce the fruit through you. All right, so he says, except you do that, you can't produce any fruit. So if there's no fruit being produced, there's the secret. Doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take too much thinking to realize that that's exactly what he's saying. If you're not bearing fruit, you're not dwelling. You're not abiding in him. You're not in communion with him. You're not in fellowship with him that day. And some drastic steps need to be taken. All right, he says, He that abideth in me, and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit... That's pretty, that's pretty declarative. If you do abide in me, if you do dwell in me like this, there'll be much fruit that's a result of this. For without me, you can do nothing. If we'd ever learn that, <laughs> if we would ever learn that he doesn't expect anything of us, us in our own strength, all he expects is that surrender and that communion and that fellowship and that dwelling and that allowing him to do it in and through us. we can do nothing. He never, ever said there was anything that couldn't that he said for us to do that couldn't be accomplished in his strength. If we abide in him, if we dwell in him, he can accomplish all of these things in and through every single one of us. Our only part is to let go to the place that we allow this fellowship, this daily fellowship to take place in our lives. Now, what are fruits? What are some of the fruits? And we need, I guess we need to stop for just a minute and decide what fruit is. What are we going to bear as Christians? Turn to Galatians 5.22. And that's our best one on spiritual fruit. And this will be the result. This will be what will be in our lives if we dwell in him. It'll be fruit and much fruit and more fruit and, and on and on and on. There'll be more the more we dwell in him year after year after year. Okay, 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, that submission to His will, temperance, against such things there is no law. Did you hear that cluster? And did you know that's a cluster? You don't take one and say, I'm abiding in him. If I have one of these, I'm having fellowship daily with him. If I have one of these, that's a cluster. You take the whole group. And if you're dwelling in him like he describes in this particular passage, if you're abiding in him that day, all of these things will be evidenced in your life and in my life. Love, joy peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Again, such there is no law. Now, if you go back up and you look at the works of the flesh and you identify more with the works of flesh than you do with the fruit of the Spirit, if you find more uh, temper and the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, if you want to take the opposite of that, You know, instead of love, there's always criticism. Instead of faith, um, instead of joy, there's just total unrest. You know, an unsatisfied soul, no peace, no patience, no kindness, none of these things. You know, if these are things that are not the evidence of your life, then that shows that you're out of fellowship and you're not abiding in Him. So it's a good test. It's a good test. All right, now let me tell you another fruit. Paul said, he said that a fruit, one of the fruits is a fruit of service. The fruit of labor, and that fruit that comes from from actively engaging in the work, not only the service of the Lord in His church, but also in the winning of people to Christ. That's the fruit. If we're abiding in Him and dwelling in Him, there will be people who are one to faith in Him because of that fruit that comes from our life. Or there will be service rendered that's beautiful. He says in 13... Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that sometimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led here, hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also as among the Gentiles. I want to come to you, Paul said, so that I can serve, and all my service will be with the end object being to win you to faith in Christ and to help you grow." All right, so that's fruit that comes from our life as we're surrendered, we're dwelling in Him. That should be one of the evidences of that fellowship and that dwelling, that fruit bearing. There should be some people who are saved, one to Christ. There should be a service that renders that leads people to a deeper walk as the result of that. That's fruit bearing. All right, so those two things are selected. I'm sure there are others, but that's enough for us to go on to, to have an understanding of what we've been saved for. We've been saved to bear fruit to the glory of the Father. Keep that in your mind. We've been saved to bear fruit. And he'll do all the purging, the cleansing, the tending. He'll do all the providing of the strength to do it in, in and through us. All we have to do is abide in him, dwell in him. All right, he says, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. You know, just tossed around. Another portion of Scripture says he's like a ship on an ocean being tossed to and fro. There's no peace. There's no... uh, sort of serenity about his experience in Christ. He's cast forth as a branch. He didn't say he was cast off or away. It's cast forth as a branch and withered. He dwindles down to a dwarf. It's just like a dwarfed Christian. He's depending on surface roots and he just withers away. There's no testimony, there's no influence, there's no fruit that comes from that life. If you don't abide and dwell in him daily, this is what you'll end up being like as a Christian. And then he says, and the King James says, and men gather them. Now, here's another one of those secrets that I came with. There was such a difference on it. This is another one of those things I discovered yesterday. Uh, the original doesn't have men. I think only the King James has men. If you have another translation, you won't find men there. All right, so it says it changes. It talks about he in the personal proton, a pronoun at the beginning of this in verse 6. He is cast forth as a branch. And then it says, and then men are... are eliminating men, they're gathered together, gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You see the change, the pronoun changed. It began to talk about something else besides the individual. Now, what's cast? What's thrown away? What's burned? And we have a passage of scripture that might give us light on that. If you turn to Matthew 13, 41, 42 Since the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and they shall there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's some more references that say it's the same thing. And we're told in the Scripture that there will be a judgment day for Christians where our works are judged. And we'll discover one day what we've done that's been a fruit, a legitimate fruit of the Spirit. A fruit that's come from a dwelling relationship with him. A dwelling with him daily. in daily communion and fellowship with him. And that day when we get there. And, he, and we don't have anything to show. And we say, don't you remember how I worked? They were works that turned to leaves. They were works of the flesh. Works that were done for self-glory. Works that were done for an individual in the church you may like and you couldn't say no to. Works, works, works. You did a lot of work, but you didn't do it for Jesus. You didn't do it by a motivated heart of love. And only what, the only thing we can take to that judgment seat that, that day is what we have done unselfishly as a resume. The only thing we'll have for us that day is what's been produced from within by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that's all we're going to have. And some of us are going to get there, but we're not going to have anything to show for it. We're not going to have anything to give to Him that day. And he has that all-seeing eye. He knows everything. He knows whether we did it for self, glory. He knows whether we did it for another human instrument. He can separate all of that very easily, and it will be separated. And there'll be the works of the flesh will be like wood, hay, and stubble, and they'll be burned. It won't count for anything. All right, he says, if you abide in me. Now, how many times has he said this already? Over and over and over, he says, "Here's your key. Here's the necessity. Remember it's just before he dies. He says, "This is the last thing I want to plunge home to you. I want you to learn this. You cannot live the Christian life unless you live in daily fellowship with me. You cannot exist in the days that are ahead of you when you're going to be persecuted for my sake. When you're going to wonder, what in the world's going to happen because I'm not there with you?" All these things you've got staring you in the face right now, this is the secret to how you're going to conquer. In and through this, and this is the secret for us today abiding in Him. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, and where are His words? Right here, we've got His words in the Scripture. And we won't have his words abiding in us unless we dig for them, will it? They won't be there for us. They won't be abiding in us unless we really get into the word of God and we study it and we memorize it and we apply it to our life and we obey it when we hear it. All of these are ways his words abide in us. They abide in us when we obey them, when we learn them to begin with and we obey them as the end result of having heard them just simply because he said them. That ought to be enough for us. All right, my words abide in you. At that point, ye will ask what you will will, and it shall be done for you. And sometimes we take what the ask what you will, and it'll be done for you, and leave the other alone. But do you remember what he said first? He said, if you abide in me, the asking what you will is for the person who's in daily communion and fellowship with him bearing fruit. Are you wondering why your prayers aren't getting past the ceiling? Are you wondering why he's not disclosing himself to you? Are you wondering why those prayers are not, you know, having any meaning for you? They will have meaning for the person who abides and dwells in him daily and allows that pruning and purging and cleansing and taking care of by the vine keeper. And for that person abiding in him, abiding in him, and the words, his words, obedient to his words and his commands, studying the word of God, acting upon what you learn, that person asks what he wills. And it'll be done for him. But you know the secret of this? That person won't be selfish in his prayers and he'll fulfill all the scriptural teachings on how a person prays. That person who's in that relationship with Christ will always be concerned about the Lord first. What I need, Lord, standing in your in your place, doing what you want me to do. I do need strength. I do need recall. I do need peace. I need things that to do what you want me to do. And that person will be praying for other people. Very unselfish. In his prayer life. He'll be praying for needs of others. And he'll come so far down the list. That by the time he gets down to himself. There was in a lot of room. For selfish prayer. And don't miss that. And don't begin to wonder why your prayers aren't being answered. Go back and find out. This is the reason you're not abiding. There's no fellowship. Herein my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. There's the key verse. That's what it's all about. That's what he had those, twi- those eleven apostles being schooled and groomed for. That's the reason we're saved, that we bear fruit and glorify the Father through the fruit. The Father's not getting any glory on earth if there's no fruit being born by the Christians. The only glory the Father gets on this earth in, in our community is what fruit we're bearing, because that's what glorifies him. And what if we become a fruitless community? the Father is not getting any glory. He gets glory when we bear fruit. And we bear fruit in His strength it in and through us. He said very clearly, you can't do that yourself. We can't decide, okay, we're going to bear fruit today and go out and we're going to bear fruit. We're going to love. We're going to have joy. We can't have those things in our own strength, but we can have them in His strength. All right, He says, this is where the Father's so shall you be my disciples. You want to know how you're known as my disciples? You want to know how you show your love for me? This is how. You'll love me enough to do what I've said here and follow this teaching and abide in me daily and allow all that takes place to be like heavenly sandpaper, thanking him in everything. As the Father has loved you, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. As the Father loved the Son, you know how he loved him, but he loved him to the point that he even allowed him to die. Remember that? He allowed much persecution. He allowed all the the scourging on his back. He allowed rebuke. He allowed death. He allowed many things to happen and that was love. He allowed that. The father loved the son perfectly and he said, that's the same kind of love. I love you. So it doesn't mean we're free from any kind of heartbreak or heartache in this Christian life. That's not the way he shows his love. He gives us all the strength that we need in and through it and he says, as the father loved you, this is perfect love. I love each one of you like that. I love each one of you in that complete, total God love. If you keep my commandments, I always circle ifs. Because ifs are biggest words in the whole Bible. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And he'll show us in his prayer in the 17th chapter how he He abided in the Father's love completely. He did everything the Father told him to do. And he said, that's what I want from you. I want you to know what you're supposed to do in your Christian life. I want you to know that the strength is there for you to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that that's how you demonstrate your love toward me. I want you to know that that's how you receive complete contentment and joy and peace and all that you need to bear fruit. I want you to know all of these things. And When you know all that, you'll know my love. You'll know my love. As I have kept my Father's commandments and in his love, that's how he knew the Father's love. All right, these things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you. And that your joy might be full my joy he said my peace I give to you in the last chapter my peace I give to you I want you to have peace with God peace within yourself peace with your fellow man I give that to you You can have it and have it appropriated in your life if you'll receive that gift from me and let it become active in your life he said the same thing about joy you know there's no such thing as a gloomy Christian if you follow the teachings of the Bible because it's contradiction in terms really there, Jesus said I give you joy I give you joy. And I give you my kind of joy. And no matter what else you can find about him, everything happened to him while he was on this earth, especially in those last three and a half years. Everything that could happen to him happened to him. And you will never find him moaning or complaining or sinning gloomily. Now, there were times when he had great compassion for one or the multitude. Great compassion. There were times even tears fell down his cheek. But you cannot call Jesus gloomy. You cannot. He had joy and victory in every circumstance in his life joy and victory You see joy is different from what we think is fun or happy or something like that joy is a serenity that comes from within and It comes out and shows itself in every circumstance for the person who abides in him and he in them and has fellowship and communion Dwelling in him daily. There's a joy. That's unexplainable and it's something that's the most noticeable thing. If you've ever known anybody like this, it's something you cannot mistake. It's something that's got to be from a power beyond us and something more than the natural man can produce for himself. Or he said, this kind of joy, I want you to be joy-filled. I want you to be filled full of joy. I want you to be a radiant picture to a lost community, a radiant picture. I don't think anything has done the Christian community any more harm than black clothes and long faces, I like black. (laughs) Seriously, have you ever seen Johnny Cash? And he comes out and he says, I wear black all the time to show the sin of the world. You know, the sin and the mistreatment of people. That's great. There's a lot of sin and there's a lot of mistreatment in the world. And that's to be sure. But I don't think that's the picture to give of the Christian life. The Christian life, I don't know what we ought to put on, but it might not be fire red. (laughs) We could show the blood in red, or we could show the purity in white. We could show many things, except just a picture of black gloom. you with that? Okay, he says, greater love hath no man. After After he says this in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Once again, this is a commandment. And you remember, in chapter 14, he said, You will show your love for me by keeping my commandments. And this is my commandment, that you love one another. And he says, uh, Greater love hath no man than he laid in his life for another person, for a fellow man. So what he said that for, right on the heels of that, was "Listen, you can believe what I'm saying. You can trust what I'm saying. Because I've shown that kind of love. I've laid down my life. I'm going to lay down my life. Within 24 hours, I'll lay down my life to show my love. And we lay down our lives in sacrificial service when we show our love for him and for others. That's it.